Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. This morning I invite you to join me in Genesis chapter 32. I want to read an episode from the life of Jacob. Perhaps some of you are happy I didn't say Hebrews chapter 11, but actually we're headed there. We're headed there to Hebrews 11 verse 21. We're actually finished with this chapter, but I just had um, a burden this morning to look at Jacob and I connected some of the things that I was meditating on from his life this week with this verse that we sort of just skimmed over when we went through chapter 11. It's in Hebrews 11:21, and I hope to end up here this morning, which says, By faith Jacob, when he was a-dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. So with that image in mind, Jacob's dying hour, blessing his grandsons and leaning on his staff, I want to read from Genesis 32, beginning in the 24th verse this morning in a message I've entitled, Learning to Lean. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. And Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of that place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Peniel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted, or if you please, limped upon his thigh. Our text in Hebrews 11 offers a snapshot of Jacob's faith at the end of his life. As he's a-dying, it says. But unlike the other people in Hebrews chapter 11, the example that the apostle cites from Jacob's life is arguably anticlimactic. (laughs) It's not as extravagant or impressive as the things that we read about the others. By faith, when Jacob was a-dying, he blessed his grandsons, and he worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. It doesn't seem to be as impressive as what we've read about Noah building an ark or Moses crossing the Red Sea, does it? Just pronouncing a benediction on his grandsons and worshiping, leaning upon his staff. It seems to be a bit anticlimactic. Furthermore, with no disrespect intended to Jacob, it seems to me that as a person of faith, he simply doesn't seem to be on the same level of valor and integrity and devotion to God as most of the others that are cited in Hebrews chapter 11. In all candor, there's not a lot about Jacob's life that stands out as impressive, much less heroic as a hero of faith. 
For example, when you think about some of the other people in that chapter, Enoch walked with God consistently for 300 years. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Noah spent 100 years building a massive ark to keep his family safe during a global catastrophe when it had never rained on the face of the earth. Can you imagine all of the ridicule and mockery he must have received as he was in process of building this super-sized boat or ship? Abraham deliberately left the security of his home for a future promised inheritance that did not yet even exist. He didn't have any children. Here's going to be your inheritance, and you're going to have a big family, but he left home before all of that had even started to take place. Moses, think about his achievements. They're pretty impressive. He refused a life of unique privilege and a future of political power. He turned his back on all of that to identify himself with a people who were, at the very moment that he left it, slaves. He left the palace for slavery, and he devoted the remainder of his life to leading this pesky group of refugees through the desert with no certain dwelling place. He did all of that by faith. That's pretty impressive. I mean, it's surprising, right? It just doesn't seem logical. It's so contrary. It's like, this is pretty radical. Think about Joshua. He led the nation in the conquest of Canaan's land, beginning with the mighty city of Jericho. And Joshua helped them to possess their possessions. What about the youthful shepherd David, who faced off with the champion of the Philistine military, the giant Goliath, and won a mighty victory that day? Or Daniel, who spent a restful night in a den of hungry lions, rather than compromise his commitment to the only true and living God, Jehovah, as he was being asked to do. And there are many, many more examples of faithful heroism and achievement in Hebrews chapter 11. And Jacob, to be honest with you, just doesn't seem to be in the same category as the rest. You might ask this morning, Brother Mike, how is the biography of Jacob that we read in the book of Genesis even remotely similar to the rest of these impressive people of faith? And why is the only event of his life that the apostle includes in this Hall of Faith chapter an episode that occurred at the very end of his life? Was that the best he could say about Jacob? And the answer is pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. Because Jacob's story, I suggest, even though it's unspectacular, it's likely closer to where many of us live than the other more dramatic examples that I've just cited. I suspect that you and I can identify more this morning with Jacob than we can with Noah building his mighty ship, or Abraham wandering as a pilgrim through the desert for many years, or Moses leading an army at least two million strong across the dry ground of the Red Sea into the wilderness and out of Egypt. I think we could probably identify more with Jacob because it took him an entire lifetime to get to the point that he needed to. In other words, what I'm saying this morning is some of these heroes of faith were leapers, but Jacob was a limper. You know, there's a verse in Psalm 18:29 that says, By my God I have run through a troop, and by my God I've leaped over a wall. I like track and field, and it always impresses me some of the leapers, the long jumpers, the triple jumpers, the high jumpers, the pole vaulters, the hurdlers. You know, that's not easy. 
to leap. Somebody said, I, with these new tennis shoes, I can leap over tall buildings in a single bound. Well, I have to tell you, my friends, I can't. I'm not a leaper. I'm more of a limper than a leaper, aren't you? You say, in my lifetime, I have run through a troop. Single-handedly, I've conquered an enemy army, and single-handedly, I've jumped over the wall. You talk about a pole vaulting record. By my God, I've leaped over a wall. Well, some of these heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 are leapers. And I have to be honest with you, it's hard for Mike Goins to identify with the Noah's, Enoch's, Abraham's, Moses's, and Joshua's of the Bible. It's, it's pretty hard for me to identify with the Daniels. Now, I'm glad to tell you that these men had their faults too, if that's any comfort to you. But at the same time, I just haven't done anything quite as spectacular in my life as they have. Have you? Most of my life has been pretty uneventful. I mean, you know, it's a normal, common existence. Is that true of you? Or have you, my friends, achieved greatness like Abraham and Moses and Joseph and some of the rest? In fact, instead of these leapers, I identify more with Jacob, who I say was a limper, halting his way through life with fits and starts and with episodes of faltering and stumbling and bumbling his way through life. That seems to be more typical of Michael Goins' life. Is that true of you? Our text said that as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him and Jacob halted. That is, he limped upon his thigh, a limper. He left this scene when he had the wrestling match with God, limping, and he limped with a dislocated hip. For the rest of his days, he had some battle wounds, he had some scars, he had a thorn in his flesh, and it left a long-term toll on his life. He just didn't seem to be consistent. He was a limper rather than a leaper. He made little to no progress, it seemed, for many years, and then only as some great crisis touched his life did he seem to become more and more a person of faith. I feel a special kinship to Jacob because I too, my beloved, am a work in process. And you are too. Did you know around our necks this morning we could all wear a sign that says um, caution under construction? <laughs> you know, slow men working. You know, punctuation matters in that sign, right? Slow, comma, men working, or slow men working. <laughs> anyway, um, in, around our necks, we could all wear a sign that says, be patient with me, I'm in process. God isn't finished with me yet. I'm not the man I hope to be, and I've made small progress thus far. I wonder if you've ever had thoughts like that. Many of you know I just had a birthday in which I turned three score years of age. And I've, birthdays have never bothered me, but I have to tell you that this one was sort of a wake-up call. Now, some of you that are in your 80s or whatever may look at me and say, that's nothing. But the 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds say, you're old, Paul, as my grandchildren say. And it's a fact that life comes at you fast. It happens before you realize it, and you say, where have the years gone? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever thought, my, it just seemed like yesterday I was a little fella or a little lady, and now... I'm just struggling to keep on keeping on, and I've got all of these aches and pains, and I'm limping my way through life. And you think, what really have I accomplished? I wonder if you've ever had thoughts like that. I do. 
I wonder sometimes, am I just a tree that cumbers the ground? You remember Jesus told the parable about the man that told his workers, this tree is not bearing fruit, dig it up and cast it aside. It's just, why should it cumber the ground? Why is it just taking up space? And they said, well, give us another year. Let us dig around it and fertilize it. And then if it doesn't bear fruit, well, we'll cut it down. So give us a stay of execution and we'll see if it'll change in a little while. And he said, that's, that's a good plan. Well, my friends, sometimes I wonder, am I just breathing air and taking up space and existing, or am I really growing? Sometimes I look at some of the young preachers that are coming up, and I see how talented they are and how devoted they are to God, and I think, my, you know, I, if I was that committed, if I was that serious about it at that age, I would probably be much farther along than I am towards spiritual maturity today. Sometimes I look at these seasoned saints, some of the ministers that I respect that are perhaps even you know near my age or just a few years older, and it seems that they are so far beyond me in godliness and usefulness in the Lord and consistency. And sometimes, my friends, I wonder if I have not made very much progress at all. Especially whenever I face a set of circumstances that perhaps I hadn't expected. Something happens that I hadn't anticipated and I struggle with my old nature like I haven't in a long time. And I think, I've, I thought I was over that. I thought that I was beyond that. I thought that I didn't have these fears and anxieties and inward trials anymore like I did some years back, and yet here it comes, it resurfaces, and I think, why am I once again fighting some of the same battles? It seems like I've learned very little in my life. Now, I don't know if any of this resonates with you, but I suspect that if you've thought very seriously about your life, you've probably at one point or another thought, instead of being a leaper and a bounder and a victor and a conqueror, I am more of a handicapped limper just making my way slowly and it's by the grace of God I've gotten this far and I really feel like I'm not the man that I should be. I identify more with the Jacobs than I do with the Moseses and the Abrahams and the Noahs and Enoch's. And the point of all of this, my beloved, is that growing in faith is a progressive thing in our lives. It's not something sudden. Now we know, don't we, that regeneration, when you're born again, that's something sudden. When you are quickened, when God makes you alive in Christ, it's not, that's not a process. Eternal salvation is not a process in which he does a little here and then a little there, and over a period of a lifetime you finally can get saved. Now are we the sons of God, says 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. When God quickens a sinner, he's not partly alive or half alive. He's alive. When Jesus speaks the life-giving voice, they that hear shall live and it's an instantaneous, sudden work. The gift of faith, and what a wonderful gift faith is. Have you ever thought about and praised God for giving you a gift, the gift of faith? You know, there's some people that don't have the gift of faith. They can't believe. They don't believe. They don't have the gift to believe. But my beloved, if you are a believer today, it's because God gave you the gift. And what a wonderful gift that is, the gift of faith. And he gave it to you instantaneously. But I'll tell you, my friends, that faith needs to grow. We need to become more like Jesus Christ. We need to grow towards spiritual maturity. And what I'm describing here is the difference between regeneration and sanctification. 
in a practical sense, or if you please, being made alive and growing in Christian character. Spiritual growth, that's a progressive kind of thing. For instance, you know, when Jesus gave life to the dead, that was always instantaneous. Lazarus come forth, he that was dead came forth. He said to the widow's son at Nain, Young man, I say unto thee, arise. And the young man arose and he delivered him back to his mother. Suddenly, instantaneously, it's a snapshot kind of activity. Punctiliar action. But remember that one lesson when Jesus healed a man of blindness? Now, we're not talking about giving life to the dead. We're talking about giving sight to the blind. And he healed him in stages. It's in Mark chapter 8, verse 22, I believe. He touched his eyes, and the man opened his eyes, and he said, what do you see? He said, I see men as trees walking. And then he touched his eyes again, and he said, now what do you see? And the man responded, I see every man clearly. He healed him in stages. You say, well, the first time just didn't take. No, the stages, the progress in this particular episode of healing, not life-giving, but healing, is intended to teach us a spiritual lesson, my friends, regarding Christian character formation. Becoming more like Jesus, that's a progressive thing. Most of us, like Jacob, my friends, are works in process. Jacob was a, let me just say it real in plain, real life terms, Jacob was a mess. <laughs> His life was disorganized, and, and Jacob was a man that seemed to make very little progress until he came to a moment of crisis. And he had at least four periods of crisis in his life. And then this final crisis is the passage I read to you in Genesis 32 when he had this wrestling match with a stranger in the middle of the night. Suddenly this man appears and lays hold on Jacob and they wrestle till the break of day in a life and death struggle. And by the time it's over, Jacob has a blessing, but he has an injury that will last him the rest of his days to go along with it. He's crippled and he limps. This encounter with God has left him with a scar and a lifetime injury. So what I want to do is review the play that is Jacob's life in the few moments we have remaining this morning. And there are three main acts in this play. And I'll label them all with the same letter. Act number one is looking out for himself, looking. Act number two is limping with pain. Act number three is our text in Hebrews eleven twenty one, leaning by faith. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, leaned upon the top of his staff. These are the three main acts in Jacob's life. First, looking out for self. You know, Jacob was a very self-centered young man. When you look at him early on, you see that he lived up to his name. His name meant heel catcher or supplanter, trickster or deceiver. Now, here's the story. When he and Esau, his twin, were born, Esau came out first. And Jacob reached his hand out of the womb and grabbed a hold. He caught the heel. He grabbed a hold of Esau's ankle. And his parents named him heel catcher. Now, you say, did he even know what he was doing? Well, this is a metaphor. This name, that you're a heel catcher, that is, you're hot on his heels. Jacob is saying, I don't want you to get in front of me. I don't want you to beat me. He's very competitive from the word go is the idea. From the get-go, Jacob is looking out for himself and he wants to be first. That's the idea. 
And may I say Jacob lived up to his name in his life. His parents named him Trickster, Deceiver, Hoodwinker, and Jacob's life from that point forward was characterized by fraud, deception, lying, cheating, double-crossing. I mean, Jacob was the original con artist, if you please. Now, there are people, my friends, who hit the ground running in life with a, I'm number one, I'm a VIP, and everybody's here to serve me, and I'm going to be first. Nobody's going to take advantage of me. This is Jacob's mindset from the very beginning. And you know that self-reliant, self-sufficient, self-centered kind of mindset played itself out in at least two important scenes in his early life. First, when he got Esau to sell the birthright. Now, Esau was the firstborn. And the firstborn in a family had the lion's share of the family inheritance. That's called the birthright. When the father died, the firstborn would get the majority of the property and would be considered the new patriarch of the family. And those who came after him were lower in the pecking order, if you please, in the hierarchy of the family. Well, Esau had the birthright because he came out first. But Jacob was constantly trying to take what didn't belong to him. And when Esau came to him one day, Jacob was making a pot of stew. And Esau had been hunting. And when Esau came up and saw that there was food, he was famished, he was hungry. He said, give me of thy pottage. And Jacob said, it'll cost you something. He said, if you want something to eat, then sell me your birthright. Well, the book of Hebrews tells us in the very next chapter, Hebrews chapter 12, that Esau, for one morsel of meat, sold his future. Now, here's a character picture of Esau. He's a young man who's willing to give away the future for temporary pleasure. And how many people are like that? How many people are willing to indulge for a moment's pleasure right now, but they don't realize that it's going to take away their future? Young people, may I say it's very important for you to think about the fact that decisions you make today may have long-term implications. I'm not trying to scare anybody. Most decisions we make in life, you can you realize you took the wrong road, you know, you've come to an intersection and you, took, you went left when you should have gone right. You go down the road a piece, you think, I don't think this is right. Many decisions, you can go back and take the other road. Your mistakes, in other words, are not necessarily permanent. There are some decisions, though, you know, if you decide to jump off of a cliff and go hang gliding and realize, my friends, that if your hang glider doesn't work or your parachute doesn't open, you know, that could be final, right? You can't get halfway down the mountain and say, I think I want to go back up. You can't rethink that. So it's, it's important to realize not that Esau, for one morsel of meat, oh, I'm so hungry. Okay, I'll give away my future position in the family for this bowl of soup, this bowl of stew. How foolish was that? And Jacob got his brother's birthright. So now he has the legal right to be the leader of the family. Secondly, the second thing that they were looking forward to was the father's blessing. Now, it was common in Hebrew families when the patriarch was dying to gather his children around his bed and to pronounce a final blessing upon their lives and a prophecy of their future. And what he would do is gather his children around him, and you can imagine the psych how psychologically powerful this moment was when dying father says to his sons, son, you've been a joy to me all my life, and you have so many talents, and I'm so proud of you. 
Uh, imagine how this could chart the future for the family. And he would say, and son, I can foresee a future of success for you and prosperity and blessing to other people. And I just think you have so many gifts and I believe in you, son, and I'm thankful to God for you. That's the father's blessing. It was called a barakah. And you know, a lot of young people struggle today, I think, because they haven't received a blessing from their parents, from their fathers. And they grow up angry and they grow up with self-doubt and they grow up struggling psychologically because there's something to say about the healing value of a father's words of affirmation and encouragement and blessing. Okay, that's what you see in Genesis 48, Genesis 49. The, the father's blessing. Well, Esau, as the firstborn, would get the blessing. But when Isaac said, Esau, I'm dying. You're my firstborn. Go out and harvest some venison. Esau was a great hunter. Get me some of that venison that I love to eat and cook it just like I like it. Season it just like I like it. I want one last meal. Son, you're my pride and joy. You're the outdoorsman. Jacob's the mama's boy. Esau, I want you to go out and get me a last meal, prepare it for me, come in and serve it to me, and then I will give you the blessing. And Esau's happy. Well, Rebecca overhears this and she calls Jacob because she favored Jacob. I mean, she had taught him to make biscuits and she had taught him to, you know, to work in the kitchen. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I mean, you know, he was closer to her. And she said, if you want to get the blessing, then you need to go in. Let me prepare a kid of the goats. And I can season the meat to where your dad won't be able to tell the... Now, Isaac was blind. He was old. He couldn't tell really what was happening. And she hatched this plot to deceive her husband so that her favored son would get the blessing. And Jacob says, well, wait just a minute. Esau's a hairy man and I'm smooth skinned. And she says, I've got all that already figured out. I'll take some of the goat skin and hair and I'll put it on your wrists and on the back of your neck. Now I'm telling you, Esau must have really been hairy <laughs> for this to work. I mean, you talk about a boy that needed a shave. But anyway, so she dresses him up and he has the smell of the outdoors on him because of this goat's hair. You know, this disguise that he's wearing. He has the meal. He comes in and when he comes in, he says, Father, I'm here. And the dad says, uh, who is it? And he said, I am your firstborn, Esau. That's a lie. I'm telling you, this young man is uh, looking out for old number one. And he says, come near, my son. And when he came near, the dad put his hand on the back of his neck and on his wrists. And, his, and he felt the goat's hair and he said, it is Esau. Even though the voice sounds like Jacob, the smell and the feel is like Esau. Then he ate the meat and enjoyed it. He couldn't tell the difference. Rebecca was a great cook. And then uh, he gave the blessing to Jacob. And as soon as Jacob has walked out of the room, Esau comes in from hunting and he says, Father, I'm here. And he says, who is it? He said, I'm Esau, thy firstborn. And he said, Esau's already been here. He said, no, I'm Esau. And I have your meat ready. I'm ready for the blessing. And Isaac says, son, I've already given it to your younger brother. Jacob has hoodwinked his dad. He's lied to his daddy. He's hoodwinked his brother. He's stolen the birthright and the blessing. And Esau says, I'll kill him if it's the last thing I do. And Rebekah says, son, you better leave home. And Jacob gets out while the getting's good. And that night, 
he comes to a place when the sun is setting in which the only pillow that he has to sleep on is a rock. He puts a rock under his head as his pillow, and while he sleeps that night, he has a dream, and he sees a ladder stretched from the earth to the heaven. The bottom touches the earth, the top touches heaven, and on that ladder, the angels of God are ascending and descending, and God is standing above it. And I suggest, dear friends, that this young man who's been looking out for old number one, this is his first of four encounters with God in which God met him, and each encounter is at a point of crisis in his life. We can label them like this. His first encounter with God is at Bethel, Genesis 28. Jacob leaves home looking over his shoulder under threat of his life, and he comes and he sleeps that night on the ground with a rock for his pillow. The young pampered boy has never had a night so tough. And he has this dream that you say, what a wonderful, sweet dream that must have been. It scared the living daylights out of him. Because when he woke up, he said his first words, how dreadful is this place? He says, this is none other but the house of God. That's what Bethel, Bethel means, house of God. This is where God lives. I'm so afraid. I was, I've been living oblivious to God's existence. Now, if ever a young man had the benefits of growing up in a godly family, Jacob did. His grandfather was Abraham. His father was Isaac. And you know good and well that Jacob had all of the trappings of orthodoxy and religious devotion in his life. He had all of the opportunities. But I'll tell you, my friend, you can't rub true religion on from the outside. It's got to come from the inside. And until this point, Jacob's faith has only been external. His, he probably went to church with Abraham and with Isaac. He probably heard them talk about the Bible or about God. Of course, you know church was not a thing yet, and the Bible had not been in Scripture. But you see what I'm saying. He had all the benefits and privileges of religious training, but yet it didn't touch his heart. As far as Jacob was concerned, he wasn't interested in God. He wasn't interested in other people. Jacob was interested in whom? Jacob. Jacob looked out for old number one. And there was nobody more important. And Jacob was a selfish, self-reliant, self-focused, self-affirming and actuating young man. And here he comes for the first time and he has an experience at a crisis point in his life. His brother has threatened to kill him. And at this point of Christ, he's now a runaway Every familiar thing that he's had in the past is behind him, and he has an uncertain future. This young, probably teenage boy, wakes up that morning, and he says, this is where God lives. I suggest, my friends, that under the crisis of Esau's threat, Jacob at Bethel realized God's presence. That is encounter number one. Second encounter with God is in Genesis 31. Genesis 31, verses 3 and 13 at Haran. He ends up with Uncle Laban in Haran, which is in southeast Turkey. It's a long ways from where they were in Canaan. Jacob ends up in Haran with Uncle Laban. And here he works with Laban. You remember what happened? The con man met the professional con artist. Jacob was a con boy, but Laban was better at the game than Jacob ever thought of being. 
For Jacob said, uh, I'll work with you for your beautiful daughter, Rachel. I mean, Rachel was beautiful. It says Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful. And tender-eyed is just the Bible's diplomatic way of saying that she wasn't very pretty. But she had a good attitude. She had a good heart. Somebody says, oh, she does, she's not much to look at. But man, she's got a good heart. Well, that's Leah. But it says Rachel was very attractive. And Jacob fell in love with Rachel. And he told Uncle Laban, I'll work for you seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. And Uncle Laban said, that's a good deal. So Jacob became Laban's worker for seven years without pay. His only payment was at the end of seven years, I want Rachel. And when that seven years was over, do you remember what happened? Jacob woke up on the morning after his wedding and he pulled the veil back and his new wife was not Rachel at all. It was her older sister, Leah. And Jacob is incensed. How dare somebody trick me like this? He's forgotten, hasn't he, that he's a pretty good trickster in his own right. And he comes to Uncle Laban. He said, this isn't right. And Uncle Laban said, no, it's not right to give the younger before the firstborn. We honor the birth order in our family. You took over your brothers, but we honor it in our family. So Leah is going to be your wife. So Jacob ends up working another seven years, and he gives him Rachel. Fourteen years for Rachel. Now, are you impressed with Jacob up to this point? Is he somebody that you would say, is, if he was my boy, I'd be so proud of him? No, Jacob's a hoodwinker, a deceiver. He's a shyster. He's a conniver. He's a con artist. How many adjectives can I think of to use for him? He's not an honest young man looking out for old number one. And finally, after he works for Laban for a while longer, and they both become rich, and Jacob starts feeling like he's being used by Laban. Uncle Laban is using me. I've buried his daughters. I'm having my own family. Jacob hatches this plot to begin to get cattle that are his and his alone. So he comes up with this breeding program in which he uses certain scientific methods to change the line of the herd. And every animal that is born with certain features becomes his, and the others who have the original features become Uncle Laban's. And before you know it, Jacob has as big a herd as Laban does. I mean, this is a very shrewd and cunning young man. And Uncle Laban begins to eye Jacob with suspicion. It says, Jacob realized that Laban's countenance was not toward him as before, which means he could tell by his face that he wasn't all embracing, but he was starting to look at him suspiciously and it says the Lord appeared to him the second time in Genesis 31 verses 3 and 13 the crisis moment is Laban's suspicion his jealousy and in this sense just as at Bethel Jacob realized God's presence for the first time here God reveals his plan to Jacob and he says you go home go back home now and I'll be with you and I'll bless you greatly that's at Haran third Genesis 32, verses 1 and 2, the third meeting with God is at Mahanaim. And the crisis is Jacob and Rachel and Leah and all of their flocks and their children have left in the dead of night. And Uncle Laban gathers his servants with him as an army and he begins to pursue him. Jacob is being pursued by Uncle Laban with an aim, no doubt, of revenge. And at Mahanaim, the Lord appears to him and shows him the host's the heavenly host, the angels, 
The word Mahanaim means two camps. Jacob says, here's my camp, and here's God's camp. Two camps, you know, and here he remembers God's protection. At Bethel, he realized God's presence. At Haran, God revealed his plan. Here at Mahanaim, he remembers God's protection. And then the fourth encounter with God is in the passage I read to you in Genesis 32 at the Ford Jabbok. So Jacob is fleeing from Uncle Laban, and suddenly he receives news that Esau has heard that you're coming. And he's coming toward you with 400 men. Now, it's been 20 years since Jacob's seen Esau. When's the last time he saw him? When Esau said, I'll kill him if it's the last thing I do. My brother is a cheater. He's cheated me out of two blessings in my life, and I'll kill him. And Jacob now gets the news that Esau's headed toward him and his wives and children and his flocks with 400 soldiers. And what would you think if you were in Jacob's shoes? I'd think he's coming to get revenge. And then it says that Jacob, still scheming, begins to divide his flocks into two camps. And he puts the wives, the children of Leah that he didn't like as much, in the front, and he puts Rachel and her children in the back, you know. I mean, he's protecting his interests. This boy is shrewd, cunning. <laughs> he's scheming and plotting. Jacob is, you say, well, he just sounds like he's street smart. My friends, may I say, that's not one of the characteristics of a man of faith. He's not depending on the Lord, is he? You say, hasn't he learned anything yet? His progress is very small. But I'll tell you, for the first time in his story, we read about Jacob praying in Genesis 32. Never before has he actually prayed, or is it recorded for us, that he actually talked to God. But in Genesis 32, under the threat of Esau's coming at him, it says, And Jacob prayed, in verse 9, and said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which saidst unto me, return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. Notice this humble confession, I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies and of all the truth. Here's the first inkling, the first hint that Jacob is starting to see things more clearly. He's learning to lean. He's been looking out for self. But now, with the crisis facing him of the fear of meeting Esau, Jacob now says, Lord, I need help. With my staff, I passed over this Jordan. I was a pilgrim when I came across Jordan to leave home. And with my staff, he says, I've become two bands. He says, I, this staff is a symbol of my life. I've been wandering for over 20 years. And he says, Lord, deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau. And then that night... So what's he afraid of? Esau is going to lay hands on him. That night, a hand comes out of the darkness. Listen to our text again. And Jacob was left alone, verse 24. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. Can you imagine how horrifying it was in the midst of the darkness to suddenly be seized by some stranger, what would be in your mind if you were Jacob? I'd think Esau has sent his assassins. You know, what I feared has come upon me. This is a crisis moment in his life. And it says they wrestled all night. And Jacob, that wiry, scrapping young man, <laughs> wrestles this man. And 
it says, when the man saw that he prevailed not against Jacob, I mean, he's holding his own, he did something that guaranteed the victory. He touched the hollow of his thigh, so he smote him in a way that Jacob's thigh was dislocated. Now, if you're a wrestler and you can't position yourself with your loins, with your midsection, with your hips, and with your waist, and, you know, that's where your strength comes from. If, if you're injured there, then what kind of wrestling career do you have to look forward to? Probably not again will you ever wrestle. Certainly never achieve victory. I mean, that's where your strength comes from. And just one blow, and suddenly Jacob's crippled. You say, who is this stranger wrestling with Jacob? Hosea 12, 3. And I know my time's gone. I've got to wrap this up right quickly. Hosea 12, 3 says, Jacob took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. Here's the point. The person who was looking out for self now has this wrestling match with a man, with the angel. Our text says, I've seen God face to face. This God-man, may I say, is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, a Christophany. You see several of them in the Old Testament where the second person of the Trinity appears, as it were, in bodily form before the fact, pre-incarnate. Before the New Testament, he appears in action and in every case, the evidence is that he's a divine person. Jacob wrestles with, may I say, the God-man till the breaking of the day, and when neither one has gained advantage, the angel smites him in the thigh, dislocates his hip, and suddenly Jacob cannot even stand, and he clings to the angel. And the angel said, let me go. The day is breaking. And Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, he's still tenacious. I mean, he's still holding on. And the angel said, what is your name? Now, a name in the Bible is not just a label. If somebody were to say, what is your name? I'd say Michael. A name in the Bible, in Hebrew settings, is a character description, a profile of character. What is your name? Remember when that question was asked him before by his dad? Who is it? What is your name? He said, I am Esau. He claimed to be somebody else. But now he says, I am that supplanter. I am the heel catcher. I am the deceiver. He owns up. He confesses his own character. He says, I am Jacob. And here's the blessing. The angel said, thy name shall not be any more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince, thou hast had power with God and hast prevailed. You say, Jacob's got his hip dislocated. He, he didn't win. How does it say he prevailed? In what sense did he achieve victory? Victory with God, my beloved, does not come through overpowering God. It comes through surrender. Victory through surrender is the biblical principle. And the epitome of that principle is the cross. Philippians 2.5, Jesus Christ, who was equal with God, made himself of no reputation. He surrendered took upon him the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He resigned himself to do the will of his father. He lost on purpose. And through that humiliation, he achieved exaltation. In other words, 
Victory is achieved with God, my brother, my sister, not by overpowering God, for you can't overpower God, but by submitting yourself and surrendering yourself to God and saying, all I want is your blessing. Now, would Jacob have said this early on? All I want is your blessing, God? No, he said, I'm going to go get it myself. I deserve it. But now, my friends, he's learned that there's something more important than success and fame and personal advancement, he receives a changed character. And with that, a changed name to Israel. But he's left with an injury. He's a broken man now. The encounter with God has left him lame. And I want to say his limp from that day forward was a daily reminder of his own weakness. Just like Paul's thorn in the flesh was a daily reminder that he needed the Lord and he couldn't do it on his own. That's why it's so interesting when we come to our text in Hebrews 11, when it says, by faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, it's taken him a long while to get here. And some people grow slower than others in Christian discipleship, right? Some of us are harder nuts to crack than others. You say, man, I, I can't imagine God has been very long suffering with me. He's had to bring me through several crises moments. He's had to hurt me. He's had to wound me. He's given me a thorn in the flesh. He's left me limping. Let me ask you today, any of your struggles in life, have they left you limping, crippled, psychologically? Do you have any issues? Anybody here have any issues? I know you do. I've been your pastor long enough to know you do, and you know I do, right? We all have our issues, don't we? Somebody hurts your feelings way back. Some, you're, you've been let down. You've been disappointed. You struggle with things. You're sensitive in certain areas. We all have our issues. Those issues remind us that we can't do it on our own, right? And we need God. And the best way to live life is not leaping as a superhero, but leaning on that staff. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph. Although he's made small progress in his life thus far, that God had faithfully provided for him, kept him, and patiently worked in his life to break his stubborn will. And now at the end, we see him leaning upon the top of his staff. Do you know where that is? And I won't take time to read it. That particular episode when Jacob worshipped is Genesis 48, verses 15 and 16. When he blessed both the sons of Joseph, it says, he said, the angel which redeemed me from all evil, may he bless the lads. It's a very religious, spiritual scene. He's worshiping while he's leaning. Jacob, in his lameness, in his crippling pain, he's still looking forward to the future, and he's leaning on the top of his staff. That's the right posture for us all this morning, my friends. Leaning on the Beloved. Song of Solomon 8.5 says, Who is this that cometh forth from the wilderness? Leaning upon her beloved. May I say, dear friends, the best posture for you to go through life with is realizing you can't do it on your own. I need support. I need to lean on the Lord Jesus Christ. Leaning on His everlasting arms. And the end of Jacob's life reveals a man, therefore, that is finally submissive to God. No longer wrestling to have his own way but totally dependent on the Lord and humbly thankful for His delivering mercy. It takes some of us longer again to grow in faith than it does others, but what a lovely thing it is to see an aged saint 
that's humbly reliant on God, grateful for God's long-suffering towards him or her, and hopeful in the Lord regarding the future of his loved ones. The hymn writer put it like this, I'm learning to lean, learning to lean, learning to lean on Jesus. Learning to lean. Are you? You say, I've already learned it, Brother Mike. Good deal. I'm still in process. Still not there yet. I'm a slow study. I hope by the time I get to the end, I will be more godly. I'll be where I should have been all along. I wish I'd gotten here earlier. I don't seem to learn as fast as others, but I'm learning to lean on Jesus. Finding more power than I've ever dreamed. I'm learning to lean on Jesus. Learning.